Global Priorities Institute and um, he is here to talk today on the Global Priorities Research, why, how and what have we learned. Um, a quick note, uh, if you have any questions, please post them in the Swapcard app so that we can then do this at the, during the Q&A session after this talk. And uh, now please have a warm welcome for Hayden Wilkinson. Thank you, Vila, for the kind introduction, and thanks everyone for coming. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about a cause area that I work in, uh, one that I think may be particularly impactful, global priorities research, as well as a couple of key findings so far in the field. So first off, what is global pr priorities research? Here's the definition that 80,000 Hours uses. It's the rigorous study of what the most important global problems are, how we should compare them, to each other and what kinds of interventions best address them. And here's the definition we use at the Global Priorities Institute. It's research into issues that arise when we're figuring out what should we do with a given amount of limited resources, resources like our time, our money, our energy, if our aim is to do the most good. By either definition, it includes very applied research, like the work done by, say, GiveWell and animal charity evaluators in evaluating different specific interventions in, say, global health, development, animal welfare. Uh, but it also includes work on more fundamental abstract questions, such as on what criteria uh, should we even compare interventions in the first place? Uh, how should we evaluate evidence for a particular intervention's effects? And what outcomes even count as good? Where I work at GPI, we're especially focused on the fundamental side of global priorities research, uh, which will be the main focus of my talk. But that's not the end all and be all of GPI. But here's a question you might have straight away uh, when considering this as a cause area, and especially something that you might want to work on yourself. Why do we need more research? We've already found uh, great opportunities, opportunities to do good, for example, pandemic pre prevention work, anti-malarial bed nets, uh, abolishing factory farms, all sorts of good things. Cool. So why, why shouldn't we just do those things? Uh, just do the high-impact high interventions that we already know about. What's the point in spending more time and more money and work thinking about what to do, or thinking about exactly how impactful those things are. Especially when resources spent on research are resources that don't get spent on just going out and saving lives. This is something I worry about myself, uh, but I think there is a pretty good case for global priorities research, uh, even the more fundamental side of it, also being a highly impactful use of our resources. So the basic reason for that is that we might currently be wrong about which causes have the most impact, or about uh, whether those impacts are positive or perhaps negative. Uh, we might be very, very wrong about those things. So for now, just looking at applied research, here's a graph of the cost-effectiveness of interventions in global health. On the horizontal axis, uh, long ways, uh, is how much impact the intervention has on health, here using the metric of disability-adjusted life years, but it's about the same, it's the same pattern uh, if you're looking at lives saved and things like that. And on the vertical axis, up and down, is how much, it was how many interventions there are that are that cost effective uh, on a log scale. Uh, so basically the, that peak at zero is actually much, much higher than it looks here. Um, the vertical scale is kind of squished down. As you can see, just on this graph, most interventions have very little impact per $1,000 spent. So if you just pick a global health intervention at random, you'd almost certainly miss out on almost all of the potential impact. Uh, the median, in fact, is 
five disability adjusted lack years per thousand dollars, which is close to one percent as yeah, close to one percent as cost effective as the very best things. So. Given this pattern of some interventions being vastly more effective than others, we shouldn't be very surprised if there are others out there that we haven't yet identified that are vastly more effective still than the ones we currently know about. So even if you're pretty sure that we found the most effective things, uh, perhaps that's giving people anti-malarial bed nets to prevent malaria. If you're not quite certain in that, uh, it can still be really valuable to look into other interventions that might be even better, if, if there are any that you can identify. Even a, even a small chance of identifying such an intervention, uh, if it brings about a, uh, if that intervention, if, when you find it, would be 10 times more impactful again than the very best thing we have now, then that's really valuable to identify. Uh, and a lot of global priorities research, such as that done by GiveWell, aims to do exactly that. Find these new interventions, which are many times better than our best options now. So, that's the case for global priorities research that's very applied, like figuring out the cost effectiveness of interventions and finding new ones. But what about the more fundamental research, where the case seems a little bit shakier? So doing more research in fields like philosophy, as GPI does, you might wonder, how could that be high impact? Well, consider a fundamental question whose answer could completely reverse what we should be doing. Do future lives matter morally, uh, or at least as much as present ones do? Uh, by which I mean, do we have moral reasons to help improve someone's life in the future as strong as our reasons to help someone by the same amount in the present? Just, uh, but like basically what it says there. Uh, so you might be uncertain about the answer to this, whether future lives matter. In your uncertainty, whatever probability you currently place on whether future lives matter, you face a decision like this. So you've got at least two options, probably many, many more, but we can compare just these two options. Uh, save lives from malaria, or do something that benefits the future, uh, perhaps you know, preventing uh, some horrible totalitarian state from arising, or uh, preventing you know, a nasty pandemic. Um, and there are two possibilities. One, future lives don't matter. If that's the case, then saving lives from malaria has a, a nice solid benefit, you know, one life saved, or whatever it might be. And preventing the future catastrophe has no moral benefit, because, well, actually, those lives don't matter, um, if, if that's the case. Um, second possibility, future lives do matter. Uh, if so, saving lives from malaria is still good, uh, but preventing future catastrophe is amazing uh, because there's a lot more lives at stake and in this, in this possibility, in this column, uh, that's something that matters. Okay. But in reality, you have another option. Uh, before you choose, you go and do some research uh, or you know, if you're thinking of the EA movement as a whole deciding between these cause areas, uh, we have another option of doing some research before we settle on malaria or future catastrophe. And suppose here that the research costs, uh, you, you can answer this question for one-tenth of uh, the total amount of money or resources you have to devote to this stuff. Um, so if you, future lives don't matter and you discover this, then you spent a tenth of your resources, you can still spend 90% you know, of your resources on what is then best, which is saving lives from malaria, and you get you know, 0.9 or 90% of the benefit of if you just save those lives from malaria in the first place. Uh, if future lives do matter and you find that out, then you would then give that money to the, say, Pandemic Preparedness initi Initiative, and you would get 90% of the, the benefit of if you'd uh, prevented the future catastrophe with all your money. Um, this is, I'm just making this case up, but uh, if we take the numbers for granted. 
Um, and that option looks a fair bit better, better than the other two. I mean, depending on how kind of risk averse you are. Um, it's certainly safer. The worst case scenario is you, you do something better than you would otherwise do. Um, and the best case scenario is um, you do an awful lot of good. Okay. Yes. Uh, so that's the case for you know, these more fundamental questions being important. Uh, no matter how fundamental or abstract or removed they are from general practice and you know, seemingly from everyday decisions, um, if, they, if answering that question one way or another completely switches what we should do um, in those decisions, uh, if it's kind of the hinge on which the, uh, all these decisions rest, then it can potentially be really valuable to answer those questions. Okay. So one... Oh, okay. So given that, in theory, uh, research in this area can be high impact, how can we identify which research questions are the high impact ones? They're, they're not all high impact. Like, not every question in philosophy is a good one. Um, I won't single out bad examples. But uh, some of them will be much better than others, and we would rather do those ones than the not-so-useful ones. So to do this, we, can use we, we could use basically the same method uh, that you know, many EAs use in to, to evaluate causes elsewhere. So we assess the importance, the tractability, and the neglectedness of research questions. Um, here, the importance is how important it is to answer that question or, or make progress on it if uh, you don't think you're going to answer it in its entirety. Tractability, how easy it is to do the analysis and actually reach an answer. And neglectedness, how much attention, work, resources other researchers have already put into it or will put into it in future, perhaps. Uh, in particular, when we're measuring the importance, I think there's, uh, we can kind of narrow it down further uh, to what we want to find. Uh, so I think an appropriate measure of importance for research questions is the expected value of information, which is uh, taken largely from a concept in decision theory and economics. So it's basically uh, how likely it is that answering the question uh, changes which, which option is better in the real-world decisions that people are making, like in the previous slide, choosing between malaria and pandemics. Um, how likely is it that answering the question you started with will actually change your decision there? How much better would it be if you landed on your new answer? Um, if, if, you were like, if answering the question would make it very likely that you would then switch to the other topic, but uh, or the other option, but even then, that other option is only slightly better, then there wasn't so much point in you know, spending some resources doing the research. Uh, we also want to weight that by, in expectation, how many times that decision gets made by other agents, uh, specifically agents who will listen to you. Um, so if the effective altruism movement didn't exist and no one listened to philosophers about uh, you know, how we should try and help others, then you know, lots of research on these topics wouldn't be so high in expected value of information. Because if no one's going to listen to the, the research findings, no one's going to change their decisions based on them, then there wasn't much value in doing the research. But now, it seems that there are, you know, there are at least this many people who are at least minimally interested in the answers to these research questions. Um, so that makes my job more worthwhile. Um, but it also means that uh, doing this sort of research can be more impactful. Okay. So how about some examples of research that does well in this kind of framework? Well, one example of a question in philosophy specifically that I think has really, really high value of information and is both tractable and neglected is whether long-termism is true. What's long-termism? Well, it's this. It's the idea that in the most important decision situations we face today, 
which options are best, and by best I mean once we've taken into account our uncertainty, it's not how it actually turns out, but it's how it looks now given that we're facing risk. Um, so best in that sense. Uh, which options are best is mainly determined by the effects of those options on the very long run future, uh, rather than say the short term effects within our lifetimes. Uh, also by most decisions, or most important decisions here, uh, that could just mean deciding where to donate or deciding which careers to take up. Those might, in many of our lives, those will be the most important decisions we ever make. Um, long-termism, or the, the rest of the statement of long-termism, it may not be the case uh, for all kinds of decisions, like deciding whether to have kids. Uh, that might not be, uh, long-termism doesn't have to say anything about that for it to be true. Uh, or decisions where we're deciding whether to make great sac sacrifices. Um, if you could say, like, push someone onto a trolley track in, in order to save the entire future of humanity. Um, you know, long-termism can, can be true without you being morally required to push anyone onto trolley tracks. Um, it's a very weak principle uh, in that a lot of moral theories could potentially say, yes, this is true, um, if the facts of the world are, are right and we do actually have ways of improving the future. Okay, and a GPI, uh, where I work, uh, <laughs> Sorry, keep mentioning that. Uh, this, is, this is one of the main questions that we focus on, or at least we have done in the last few years. Uh, and we're not sure what the answer is, um, despite you know, Will McCaskill's recent uh, you know, podcast spree, uh, media blitz. Uh, we're not, like, as an institution, like, sold on the idea. Um, we're, we're not sure if long-termism is true. If we were, there really wouldn't be much, uh, much value in doing research into it. Um, okay. Uh, also, it seems like a question that's fairly neglected uh, within philosophy and also, uh, you know, related empirical questions are neglected in the other fields uh, that are relevant for figuring out whether we can predictably affect the future and how we can do so. Uh, it's a question that's fairly tractable, we found, within philosophy, uh, and so are the many related empirical questions in other fields, uh, especially economics and psychology and history. Um, and it's important. It's very high value of information. Whether long-termism is true could completely reverse what we should be doing as you know, effective altruists who are trying to just use our resources to do, to do as much good as possible. And there are lots of uh, real-world decision makers out there with lots of resources, like the EA community and these big foundations, uh, who care about this question and are likely to act on research findings. Uh, yeah, so uh, in terms of you know, when and where it would reverse our decisions, for instance, if we're deciding uh, whether to give to biosecurity interventions uh, or improve health in the short term. Uh, potentially, whether it's true, switches us between one and the other. It's also related questions that we look into and we also think are, like, do well on this metric of value of information. So what counts as a positive effect on the long run future and what's the most effective way of actually making it better? Okay. So now for the second part of the talk. Uh, I've already talked about what sorts of questions we're interested in as, you know, the global priorities research field. Uh, and now for some, some of the answers to those questions that we've found so far. Specifically, I'm going to talk about questions within philosophy as the, those are the ones I'm actually qualified to talk about. Uh, so, the first question is about how to decide in risky situations. Here's the sort of case uh, that we're, uh, we face often when we're choosing between interventions that benefit the short term and ones that benefit the long term. Uh, you've got some money to donate to charity uh, or some other resources like your, your, your the time in your career to, to use one way or another. Uh, you've got some short-term options, or here just you've got one, uh, which gives you a certainty of improving many, a, a moderate number of people's lives in the short term. Um, so perhaps you know with a career of you know 
very focused, diligent work, uh, you can save a thousand people's lives. And perhaps you have a long-term option. So this option has a probability of one in 1,000, perhaps, of greatly improving one billion future lives uh, in the long term by, say, preventing a catastrophe. And it has a probability of 999 out of 1,000. So uh, 999 times out of 1,000, if you were to like, run this choice, uh, the long-term option would end up doing nothing at all. Okay. Yeah. So the basic characteristic of a choice between these two things is that one has a sure payoff, it's really safe, uh, and the other only has a tiny probability of success. And most likely, you taking that option will make no difference to the world whatsoever, uh, which is a little depressing. Uh, and note that I've just made these numbers up. Uh, in real-world cases, they may be very, very different. Um, but I'm talking philosophy, so we, we don't need to worry too much about the real world. Um, OK. So a common view about how to choose in situations like this is to choose whichever option maximizes the expected benefit or the expected value. Or, OK. So this means for each option, we take the average of how good the outcome will be, weighted by the probability of each outcome. We multiply how good each outcome is by its probability. Uh, and then we add those up for every possible outcome. So yeah, for the long-term option here, we multiply 1 billion lives by 1 in 1,000, the probability. Um, and then we add the remaining probability times 0. So it's the expected benefit is 1 million lives saved. Or like on average, choosing this option, you would get one million lives saved, uh, which is a lot more than the benefit or the expected benefit of the short-term option, which is just a thousand lives saved. Okay, uh, but this isn't the only possible view. Uh, sometimes it's suggested that it is that this is just the sensible way to decide under risk. Uh, but there are alternatives. Uh, we could be risk-averse. Uh, what does that mean? It means that uh, we would then be more concerned with avoiding risk. Uh, we would place extra importance on getting good outcomes for sure. Um, and if we're risk-averse enough, then in this situation, that would lead us to saying that the short-term option is better uh, because we get a, a better option for sure. Um, the worst-case scenario is, it seems, we take a long-term option, nothing happens, um, and that seems worth avoiding. Okay. So a lot of the work at GPI is focused on the question of how we should choose in cases like this, whether morally we should just maximize the expected benefits or instead be risk-averse. And the first key result I'll be describing deals with just that. So here's one way you might think of that case, by valuing the outcomes based on how much of a difference you make to them. Uh, so the short-term option, the first row, uh, it gives you an outcome of one, regardless of what happens, regardless of whether there was going to be a big catastrophe in the future. Uh, in either possible state of the world, in either column, value one. And the long-term option, if no catastrophe were to happen, then you make no difference. So we'll, give that, we'll, we'll call that value zero. And if the catastrophe was going to happen, then you prevent it because you took the long-term option and you then make an enormous difference. And put this way, yeah, it seems like the, the short-term option is a lot safer. And if you're risk-averse enough, it seems like you should go for the short-term option. But this isn't the only way to look at these two options. In terms of how good, uh, instead of looking at the difference you make, you could look at how good each outcome is as a whole. Like this. So looking at the, the columns, uh, catastrophe versus no catastrophe. If there's no catastrophe, then whatever you do, there's all this value in the world, you know, a billion happy lives or whatever number is actually accurate. But if you took the short-term short option, then there's one extra happy life. You've slightly, uh, you made the world slightly better. 
But in the other column, if the catastrophe would have happened, uh, then the short-term option turns out far, far worse. Uh, there's, there's one happy life, uh, plus whatever else is in the world, but you miss out on those like billion future happy lives. And meanwhile, the, the long-term option turns out quite nicely. Like you, you've still protected the future, everything's okay. Except for the, the one person who died of malaria. Um, okay. So the worst case scenario now is you choose the short-term option and there was a catastrophe. Like that's far worse than anything else in that table. Um, in terms of how good the world as a whole is. Um, so looking at the case in this way, in terms of how good the world is, that short-term option is suddenly, suddenly looks a whole lot riskier. Uh, so being risk-averse in this sense, in terms of how good the world is, uh, would make us go for the long-term option even harder. Uh, it looks even better than it did before for someone who wants to like, maximize the expected benefit. So if we're risk-averse, or we think risk-aversion is like the right theory for decision-making under risk, uh, it depends uh, which of these two ways we look at the situation uh, for uh, you know, what we actually end up deciding. So which is the right way to look at it? It turns out there's some pretty good reasons for thinking that the second way is a, you know, a more rational way to do it. So one reason is this. Consider this hypothetical case. Uh, there's a coin flip, a perfectly fair coin flip, and you can choose to do any of three things. If you do nothing, or you can do nothing, you can do A, or you can do B. If you do nothing, the, the value in the world will either be one or zero, depending on how the coin flip goes. Uh, if you do A, the value becomes two or one, and if you do B, it becomes one or two. Uh, but uh, A and B are kind of swapped around to go with different sides of the coin, like which outcome has one and which, which has two. Um, and looking at it this way, you know, A and B seem equally good. They give us exactly the same values of the world with exactly the same probabilities. Uh, the only difference is uh, which side of the coin each outcome is associated with. Like, there seems to be no difference between the two. We should treat them as equally good. That seems, seems rational. Um, but what if we look at this case based on the difference you make compared to doing nothing? Then you have this. Do A, and you make a difference of one either way, because it's one better than doing nothing. And if you do B, you make a difference of zero or two. Uh, since that's what we get if we take the difference between B's values below and the do-nothing option. And then B looks a lot riskier than A. A guarantees value 1, while B risks value 0 for this extra chance at value 2. So looking at the gamble in this way at the top, in terms of the difference you make, risk aversion would prefer, lead us to prefer A over B. But this way of looking at the situation seems wrong. Uh, when A and B are exactly the same gamble with exactly the same outcomes, just swapping around which side of the coin is associated with what, it just doesn't seem plausible that either of them is better than the other. And so analyzing these situations just in terms of the difference you make must be a mistake. Okay. Uh, but maybe this isn't so surprising. So consider a case of preventing catastrophe in another setting, uh, a more personal one. So suppose your house has probability 1 in 10 of burning down um, in future at some point because, you know, fires happen. Uh, and you can choose now whether to buy a fire extinguisher or to com uh, and thereby completely prevent your house from ever burning down. If you buy the fire extinguisher, there's a probability of 9 in 10 that your purchase will make no difference because there was never going to be a fire. And there's a probability of 1 in 10 that good thing you bought it. Like your house was going to burn down and now it doesn't. So probability of 1 in 10 that buying the fire extinguisher made a big difference. Alternatively, you could spend your money on pizza. Forget about fire safety and just have some nice pizza today. Um, if you do so, 
then you have a certainty of making a difference. You're going to be happier today. Um, and there's no risk that your money will have gone to waste. Okay. So put this way, it seems like, or put this way, it is the case that buying the extinguisher is the riskier option. Uh, that it's safer uh, in terms of risk to buy the pizza. Well, buying the extinguisher is the riskier option. Yeah. Um, and supposing that you'd enjoy that pizza, say, like anywhere near maybe one-tenth as much as you'd st enjoy still having the house, then uh, being risk-averse about how much of a difference you would make uh, pushes you towards buying the pizza, uh, not safeguarding your home. But in this case, uh, we have good intuitive sense about what's rational to do and what someone who's averse to risk to do, uh, what someone who is averse to risk should do. Uh, they should buy the fire extinguisher. That's the, the rational sort of risk aversion that we had in mind, uh, I would think. Uh, and this is what we get if we frame the situation in the other way, in terms of how good the world is. In terms of this, it's far less risky to buy the extinguisher. Uh, it's, it's safer, because you're protecting you know, what actually matters. You're avoiding the real worst-case scenario, not the worst-case scenario of uh, you know, your, your money going to waste. Um, yeah. and, and this seems like a much more rational way to be risk-averse. So in effect, this situation with the fire extinguisher and the pizza, uh, it's analogous to the long-term option and the short-term option, uh, you know, very loosely, swapping lots of things out. Um, so the long-term option, despite being unlikely to make a difference, it's safe safeguarding against some risk of catastrophe, something really genuinely bad. Uh, and so the proper way to approach the long-term versus short-term case, if you're risk-averse, if we stay consistent with these sorts of cases, with the fire extinguisher, is to place even greater weight on the benefits of preventing a future catastrophe. Uh, risk aversion, like it does here, should push us even, even further towards uh, preventing major risks, um, which, you know, when you say it like that, it kind of sounds obvious. Um, okay. So here's the, here's the result in, you know, more of a summarized form. Uh, being averse to risk doesn't provide a good justification for preferring so-called safe short-term in interventions over long-term options aimed at preventing catastrophes. Uh, it is an important proviso that it's aimed at preventing catastrophes. Uh, some long-term interventions, uh, they might be similar to, you know, buying a lottery ticket, uh, and if it pays off, something really good happens. So it's not like mitigating a risk, it's rather like, you know, gambling for something extremely good. Um, so this, this result doesn't apply to those, those sorts of interventions. Um, but it does apply to preventing things that you think are generally, genuinely catastrophic. Okay. Uh, also, I've only you know, barely scraped the surface of like the actual arguments in favor of this result. Um, highly recommend going and reading the paper that's uh, cited at the bottom there, uh, which I don't think is actually public yet, so don't go and try and read it yet, but um, <laughs> in a while, go and try and read it. Okay, uh, the second and last result I'll describe is about population ethics rather than decision theory. So in population ethics, there's an important distinction, uh, which I suspect will be familiar to those of you who went to Michael Plant's talk yesterday, or who have you know, already speedily made it through Will McCaskill's new book. Uh, so th this distinction between making happy people and making people happy. You might think that happiness, or well-being, or whatever it might be, uh, is morally valuable, and you want there to be more happiness in the world. Uh, there are two ways you could do that, at least two ways. Uh, one is by helping people uh, who will already exist, making, making those people happy, uh, the other is to just make more people exist, uh, to make happy people. Um, you know, there will be happiness in their lives, the more of them there is, the more total happiness. Um, but you might think morally the, the second thing isn't so important. If you've, if you've got two options, one is to save someone from suffering right in front of you, 
uh, or you could just create more people to like compensate for, to make up for that person's suffering. Um, it seems better to do the first thing. Like there, it's more important to help uh, existing people than it is to, you know, just create more value. Um, and that's what some moral theories say. It's a, a fairly widely held position in philosophy um, that there's a difference between the two. Okay. And it's sometimes thought that on that theory, we should reject long-termism. Um, to see why, here's a case yet again. Uh, so suppose you can choose either of these outcomes and there's no risk involved, so you're just you know, one or the other. Uh, so you can choose a quick extinction. Uh, for the next 100 years, humanity goes on, everything's great, or you know, let's suppose everything's great, uh, and then we all painlessly cease to exist. Um, perhaps we like, live out the remainder of our natural lifespans and then we cease to exist. Um, but you know, beyond 100 years, there are no humans left. Or a long future, but at great cost. So humanity continues to exist for millions of years, but in order to achieve that, uh, for the next 100 years, we have to pay some serious costs. You know, it's gonna be misery for 100 years, uh, or at least you know, lives ba barely worth living, perhaps. Uh, but there's a huge payoff. Which of these is better? Well, you might think the first one is better, or you might think the second one is better, because, oh, there's more total value in the world. There's, there's greater total happiness. Uh, but many philosophers would say that's a mistake, or at least you know, some views disagree with that. Uh, and say that actually the first thing is better because the only difference, or the, the only benefit of the long future over the quick extinction is that it's got more people in it. Uh, you create more people, uh, make more people exist, and those people's lives are good. Um, but remember, uh, plausibly, this is far less important or not important at all compared to making people who, who will already exist happy. Uh, so if we can only do that at the expense of uh, making people for the next 100 years miserable, then we shouldn't do it. Uh, such views would say, or at least it's not better to do it. Okay. Yeah, so thinking that it's not good to make happy people, that seems to make extinction risks less important, but it doesn't automatically undermine long-termism. After all, you can improve future people's lives in many other ways. Uh, you can improve people's quality of life if we don't go extinct. Uh, so here's another case. Suppose you can choose, again, either outcome risk-free. Uh, one is uh, great present okay future as against okay present great future. So first one is for the next 100 years, everyone has great quality of life. Uh, from 100 years onwards, until we go extinct much, much later, um, at the same time, either way, uh, from 100 years onwards, everyone has okay quality of life. So it's a bit worse, uh, but in the near term, we've got good lives. And there's okay present great future. I'll just get the mouse out of the way. Uh, so okay, present, great future gives us 100 years of okay quality of life, like we need to pay some slight costs, maybe you know, stop burning fossil fuels or something. Uh, and from 100 years onward, onwards, everyone has great quality of life. We achieve utopia, or we just you know, make people's lives far more satisfying, far happier. Uh, but as a result, the identities of everyone who exists are changed. Uh, so for those of you who've already read Will's book, there's probably a familiar point. Uh, but basically, uh, whenever we, we make large-scale changes uh, to the world, we end up changing the identities of many, if not all, future people from some point onwards. Um, this is because uh, you know, uh, human identities are at least partly dependent on uh, our individual genetics, and it's really fragile uh, changing you know, which human or you know, which set of genetics uh, you know, gets conceived. Um, if you go outside and you hold up traffic, traffic for a moment, and, or you, know, you, you pause traffic throughout the city for, for 30 seconds, then you know, as long as one person in all of Berlin was driving home to conceive a child that night, 
and as a result, that conception happens 30 seconds later, well, it's going to be a different one of the 2 million sperm that reached the egg first, uh, and so someone, someone with different genetics. Roughly as different as from one sibling to another in any given family. Um, and that person's going to live a different life, they'll make different decisions, have different traits, uh, and the entire future will go differently. Uh, but, importantly, there'll be different people. Okay, so here's the second way that uh, you might want to improve the future as a long-termist, not reducing the extinction risk, but improving quality of life. Uh, but there's the side effect that if you do so, you're changing the identities of people. Is it still the case that uh, the view that says making happy people isn't so good, uh, is it the case that that view says this doesn't matter, this isn't so important? Well. So here's, here's that case simplified down. Uh, instead of having you know, 10 billion people alive in the present, we just have one person. That person's name is Presley. Uh, and then we have future people. Uh, there are only two future people either way. Just the idea is there are more future people than present people. Um, if we do the great present, OK future, then the future consists of Bob and Bob, and their lives are OK, and we just represent OK with a zero. Uh, if we create the great future, then we create Carl and Carla instead, those are our descendants, uh, and they have better lives, one and one. So, you know, one is a good life, zero is an okay life. Um, that's all, all the numbers are describing. Okay. Uh, you might notice that uh, okay present great future, it, yeah, it makes the people who exist happier but changes who those people are. So in some sense, it doesn't make any particular person happier. Um, and this is something that you might be concerned about morally, and many of these views that don't care about making happy people are concerned about, uh, if they satisfy this person-affecting principle. Uh, one outcome can't be better than another unless it's better for someone. And you might notice, of all the people lined up, Presley, Barb, Bob, etc., none of them, none of those individual people are made better off when we go from great present to okay present, uh, and vice versa for futures. Um, every single person, like either they come into or out of existence, or they're made worse off. So the person-affecting principle says, okay, present great future is not better. Yeah. Uh, but should we accept one of these moral theories that actually upholds that principle? Uh, what are sometimes called narrow person-affecting theories. Um, and note that not all person-affecting theories are this sort of theory, but the narrow ones are. Okay. Uh, if we accept one of them, then let's suppose uh, great present okay future is better than the other one. Okay, well, let's focus on the second one, okay, present, great, future, take it by itself, and consider an imaginary person who doesn't exist in this outcome, called Daria. Okay, and then, let's rearrange this slightly. Same people, but I've just put them in a different order, uh, so it looks kind of, might look kind of familiar. Um, and then we imagine a third option, which doesn't exist, uh, it's not available to us, but it's got the same people, and we've like, rearranged them a little bit. And we can, yeah, so this, look, this should look very familiar. This is the same pattern we had for great present, okay future, and okay present, great future, but now it's okay present, great future, and this imaginary third option. So if the first one, the great present one, was better than the okay present one, then this one has to be better than the imaginary third, or the okay present one has to be better than the imaginary third one. It's the kind of the same pattern repeated. Also, we can do the same sort of rearrangement and we go from our imaginary third one to the great present one. So again, same sort of pattern, 
uh, if, if we have the original claim, the person affecting claim that great present is better than okay present, uh, then okay present is better than the imaginary third option, and then this keeps going around, the imaginary third option is better than the great present. So the great present option is better than itself, uh, which doesn't make sense. Um, that's not possible. It's gotta be equally as good as itself. Okay. So that's the problem. Uh, what? Something's better than itself. That seems irrational. Uh, we've got a few options here, like how we can modify our moral theories to get around this. Uh, we could just accept long-termism. Reject these like narrow person affecting views, this very particular type of view, um, and accept long-termism. That's, I mean, that's one way to do it. Uh, another way is to like accept the result, give up transitivity, uh, this claim that if A is better than B, and B is better than C, then A is better than C. Uh, like, well, we can take these things separately, um, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, they don't have to kind of connect and give you a coherent chain of preferences. Uh, you can also give up comparing the two options at all, uh, but that means giving up comparing any options at all in practice ever, um, which seems a bit, you know, equally absurd morally. Okay, so wrapping up, uh, key result two, uh, a, key, a key moral premise of long-termism uh, can be avoided, at, or basically, you know, the, the case before of like, okay, the case before of like, okay present versus great present and the futures, uh, the, we can deny that okay present great future is better than the alternative if we adopt certain views of population ethics. But all such views will either violate transitivity or say that most outcomes are incomparable. Um, so like these theories just tell us nothing in practice and so they seem likely to be wrong. Um, so that's, might make you more confident in long-termism or might make you less confident because now you have like certain theories you can point to and say, actually, yes, they do escape long-termism. Long um, so take it as you will. Uh, and I'm going to skip over that. And anyone who's like interested in like the sort of work we do at GPI and interested in a job, uh, come talk to me in my office hours. Um, the end. Thank you. I saw during the session that you had some great questions for Hayden, um, so I'll be going through the swap card. Um, the first question is, do you think the question, question is long-termism true, is actually answerable, and what, if anything, could convince you that it isn't? Yes. Uh, as for what would convince me that it isn't, um, a really strong, compelling philosophical argument for particular views that deny long-termism or are incompatible with it. Um, alternatively, empirical work that shows that all the ways we have so far thought of uh, that, or ways we've thought of to predictably improve the long-term future, that actually they don't predictably Im improve the long-term future. Uh, if, for instance, it was demonstrated that uh, AI technologies uh, you know, just couldn't reach human-level intelligence somehow. I, I'm not sure, like, how it would be possible to prove that, but computer science would, scientists would have a better idea than me. Uh, I mean, that would, that would chip away at the case for long-termism. Uh, likewise, uh, if it could be demonstrated that it's just biologically impossible for pandemics to, uh, to reach a sort of level of virulence and lethality that, uh, that make them, you know, po pose a civilizational-level threat, then, again, that chips away at the case. Uh, and likewise, if you had uh, 
empirical arguments or kind of empirical proof of some, some form showing that other interventions didn't do so well, like you know, institutional design or um, like improving just economic growth or what have you. Okay, thank you. Um, another question was um, the value, or it has a bit of an introduction. The value of many long-termist options do good to do good seems to depend largely on the prior regarding the probability of an option that is so good as so good actually existing. EV calculations with reasonable guesses are evidence towards the option existing, possibly strong evidence. But still, how do you select the prior? Good question. Uh, I'm not an epistemologist, uh, except you know, by the, the stretchiest of definitions. Um, so I'm not in a great place to answer this. Um, yeah, it's a, a generally recognized problem that uh, selecting priors, uh, selecting prior probabilities for you know, possible ways the world could be, um, that it's unclear how we would choose like, uh, rigorous ones and then you know, uh, you know, learn from our evidence in a way and uh, end up with like, specific probabilities that are the right probabilities. Um, if you're, uh, if you think that the relevant, so, so there's, there's a philosophical question here as to like which probabilities are the relevant ones. Um, and there's a few different sorts of probabilities. One is like the actual physical probability of something happening out in the world. Like if you, uh, if you roll a die, maybe the physical probability of getting a six is one in six. Uh, and the physical probability of a particular like quantum measurement of, you know, some particle or something is whatever probability that is by physical laws. Um, and then there's probabilities that are uh, entirely dependent on what we believe. Um, so, you know, if someone believed that the die had five sides or something, they might think that the probability of a six is one in five. That would be a, a strange thing to believe. But if someone believed that, uh, then they have their probability. They, they, don't, uh, they don't need to have, like, you know, done updating from a prior. They just have their own prior. They have their own probability. If you think those are the morally relevant probabilities, then job done. Uh, you just use those. If you have like, uh, if you think those are the relevant probabilities, and you think there's you know such and such probability of you know AI catastrophe and some probability of you being able to stop that, then um, you you're already sold on long-termism, I guess. Um, but it largely comes down to what sort of probability you're using. Uh, the third one, which uh, the Bayesian uh, prior issue is a real problem for, is using evidential probabilities, which are uh, whatever probabilities the evidence gives you, um, and yeah, regardless of what you actually believe, uh, if you could like process all the scientific evidence available to you, what probability would you end up with if you were like a perfect Turing machine or something? Um, and yeah, it's a it's a hard problem. Um, uh, I guess in some cases there like there are like partial solutions to this. There are like some suggestions of appropriate priors for for different possibilities. Like if you were to guess, uh, you know, the density of the solar system, like you use a particular sort of prior, um, but. I'm not particularly placed to like actually answer this. Sorry. Okay, and then I think um, one or two more questions, depending on <laughs> how long you take answering them. Um, <laughs> Long-termism could be true, but irrelevant to decision making if the future is unpredictable. So, how confident are we in our ability to assign probabilities to future outcomes? Uh, so, I think long-termism wouldn't be true if the future was sufficiently unpredictable. Um, if it was such, if the future was unpredictable, uh, such that we had no idea uh, about the effects of any of our actions, uh, not just that we were uncertain about them, that there was some risk involved, uh, but that 
we actually just had no idea. And so every option we took, uh, or every possible action available to us, um, there's the same, they produce the same gamble over different possible futures. Uh, then those futures are just equally good, um, at least in terms of you know, uh, how good they are taking into account your uncertainty or taking into account the risk. Um, so yeah, then long-termism would just be false, I think. Um, you could like have a very particular sort of moral view that doesn't care about risk and is actually looking at how good the outcome is, um, but yeah, that's a fairly rare moral view. Uh, it's got a bunch of problems. Um, long-termism would be false, would be my takeaway from that, that situation. Okay, thank you. Then I think um, that is all our time we have, so uh, thank you mu so much for listening. And there will be uh, a further Q&A session like an uh, office hours at five o'clock um, in the Newton Hall at the office hours area. So you can talk further <laughs> there. Thanks so much. Thank you.